Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Bonney. This is episode 57, Act 1, Miko Lee, Arts, Essence, Us, recorded August 17th, 2022. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives aloud are the only roads you can see Just remember who walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now, start it up now. Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching Irishy Podcast. This podcast is research recorded and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of our global community. Hey, hey, y'all. We have surpassed 30,000 listens. Thanks so much for choosing this indie podcast. We absolutely love and appreciate you. Help us get to 40,000 listens by inviting your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We can also be heard on any podcast player. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and head over to teachingrsg.org to access episodes, guest bios, our video series, merch, and so much more. Here in the U.S., election day is around the corner. I encourage everyone to go out and vote in these midterms. And midterm elections are often historically, uh, often has less voters than in a presidential year. And if you don't know what midterms means, it basically means in the middle of a presidential term. Um... Are we going to have a Congress that will work with the president or a divided Congress with our two branches of Congress? I don't know. Uh, It feels like, you know, there are a lot of strategies and tactics being utilized to undermine a free and fair election, which, you know, we can we can take a long time to get into. But we don't have that time here. Um, So, yeah, well, I believe very much in voting rights for all citizens um, in a climate like this one where um, those in government and beyond are actively working to oppress certain factions of us. This is, this is the time 
we should be like coming out in droves and, and record breaking here. So I think it's really important to go and vote. Let's go. All right, let's get to our guest, Miko Lee. Miko Lee is a remarkable, remarkable woman. And I was thinking about it. I'm like 99% sure that she and I have never actually met in person. (laughs) Um, But for whatever reason, I feel very, very connected to her. I mean, she is wise and generous and a knowledgeable practitioner whose work has been mostly rooted in the nonprofit arts sector. And in this episode, we learn about Miko's current roles, um, childhood arts engagement, and uh, a growing self or self-understanding, yeah. Here is episode 57, act one, Miko Lee, arts, essence, us. Miko. Courtney. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. Welcome to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. That's me. That's me. Um, Honored to be talking with you. You know, I feel like the last time, one time, I'm having a vivid memory of us on Zoom talking about the podcast and like ways to um, to promote it. And then I, I got overwhelmed, <laughs> but I really appreciated how much you're like, let's get this out there. Let's do things. Uh, well, we do what we can over here. <laughs> I mean, no matter what people say, we're still living in a pandemic. I don't care what everybody says that it's over. It's not over. We're feeling it every day. People I know are getting sick or they're worried about getting sick. And, you know. Oh, yeah. I worried about it. Or like there's always that ping like, oh, oh, no, we hung out a couple of days ago and now you've got it or you were exposed. Uh, Okay. And then you're just like waiting. It's like a waiting game. Um, hey, hey, Miko, this podcast really likes to celebrate artists, culture, and equity, and that can take lots of different shapes. So I'm super excited to hear about your journey, your origin story, where you came from, how you engaged in arts, any advocacy work that you do. I want to know about the current role you have. I want to know kind of everything. You ready? Oh my, I'm ready. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's start with the, with the, the, um, sort of the salu- salutation or the greeting. How are you? How are your loved ones? I am okay. And my loved ones are fine. My two daughters have now just recently moved out of the house. Uh, they have been holed down here during the pandemic where we literally had a curtain just dividing up rooms so we can have enough rooms for people. And now once in New York, once in Chicago, I'm here in Berkeley, California, and we're all settling in. Nice, nice. Um, what is your current role uh, within our our stratosphere? <laughs> 
Within our stratosphere, I still remain on the National Advisory Committee for TAG, Teaching Artists Guild, and I'm happy to still do that. And I work with Jean Taylor on ITAC, which is International Teaching Artists Collaborative on the US hub part. So mm -hmm. TAG works with Lincoln Center on that. But my day job, my, you know, <laughs> my, my real job, I say in air quotes, is I am the director of programs for Asian Americans for civil rights and equality uh, so this is my first is this right yes i do think it's the first time in my life as aside from college where you know i was just working to get money i think this is the first job i've had that's not for an official arts organization Ooh, how does that feel you know when the um ed came to me and said do you want to take this job when i was running tag i said me <laughs> like I'm an artist what are you talking about and I started giving all the reasons why I'm not right for the position like I I think really creatively I stay up all hours sometimes I don't like working nine to five I I um I go through a process of learning and understanding I believe in the you know iterations to be able to get to a place I uh, believe in the creative power to change things. I love collaboration. And every time I came up with a, something that I thought was going to be an obstacle, he'd say, that's great. That's good. Bring that. All of those skills you have as an artist and as an organizer, bring those to our civil rights organization where you can help us creatively organize and make the change that we want to see. And so I just felt like it was a juicy opportunity. And honestly, I never thought I'd say this, but I feel like I am at the right place at the right time and surrounded by people for the first time ever that I feel like, oh my gosh, we share values around, you know, trying to make the world a better place. And there's a trust and uh, a, a deep commitment and, you know, passionate belief in um, changing the world that is really makes me feel like, uh, blessed makes me feel blessed what was the transition like between the last role you had and this new one and how, how long have you been there I started full-time in January but I actually did a slow five-month ease out of tag mm. so I started working there part-time in October he really wanted me to start immediately in June. <laughs> I said, I can't do that. I'm a teaching artist guild. We're just creating this whole new structure. We're having this national convening. And so I said, can I work that from this time, not way, pushing it way off to start in January and starting just part-time in October and then building it up. And so that's what I did. Love that. Well, I love that they were open to that. Um, so I'm, I'm realizing now what's my question I, and what you just said, we need to just mark something. So, uh, what was your previous role? Cause you said that you're on the national advisory board, but was your, what was your role with teaching artists guild? So, um, I've actually been involved with teaching artists guild since it started in the very, very early days in the Bay area, even before it was called teaching artists guild, it was called teaching artists organized. <laughs> and uh, so I've been connected for a really long time about uh, right before the pandemic, 
<laughs> I can't remember what year was that, maybe 2019, right before the pandemic, right before the lockdown hit. The um, executive director at the time, Jean Johnstone, said, I really want to go back to grad school. This has made me really realize how much I want to do policy work. And she said, can you step in for me? And I had just left uh, an arts organization that I'd been running for oh, 13 years, and I was going to be a consultant and do my own thing and just uh, just branch out. And Jean said, can you just hold on to this just for a tiny bit in time, just till we get stabilized? Um, and so I said yes. And so that was as we were doing a merger of Teaching Artists Guild and Association of Teaching Artists. And um, so it was ended up being a year and a half of a lot of work of pulling together two organizations recrafting a national board and creating the first national convening for teaching artists. Okay. So now my question is, as you were transitioning through that part-time, that sort of scaling up into working full-time, what, what were the, you already said, this is the right place at the right time, which is great. So it sounds like you're able to utilize that creative, um, you know, way of working in the, in the, in the company, but what was different between, you know, working in the arts field versus working in a, in a civil justice kind of organization? Oh, there's such a big, big off the charts difference in terms of process. Okay. So one of the things I've really realized, I'm just coming to realize is how much I need collaboration in order to, um, in order to do anything. I really realize that I'm used to working with artists where when you're sitting together, everybody's throwing out different ideas. And, it, you know, my background as an artist is in theater and especially in theater, you know, you have a show, you're going to work on that one show and everybody's going to put their best ideas together and then you're going to be able to make it into a final finished piece. And it's a collaborative piece with not just the actors, the director, but the designers and all the folks associated with it. So going to, um, even though I'm working with an organization that is a network of multiple organizations, um, it is different in terms of the work style, the kind of just throwing things around and going, it's much more of, okay, here's, here's my finished thing. I'm like, a finished thing? What? <laughs> just not used to that necessarily. I've done it in the past, but I do... I live and love in the brainstorming part. To me, that's the part that excites me. And in the learning, in the learning from other people so that you can make something greater and bigger and better together. Yeah. So I have found ways to bring that into my role um, because we, you know, uh, I, I just had a group leaders meeting last Wednesday night and I started off the whole meeting with a theater game, Two Truths and a Lie. And it was so much fun and they were laughing and it was just like, it's so for us theater folks, it's really easy to just pull you, you see the crowd, the zoom crowd, that's kind of good and dim. Okay. Let's pull out some theater games because honestly, what it's about is building relationships and that relationships and that trust so that you could do that work. I think I have had a set idea of what creativity is. Mm -hmm. And what I'm re realizing is how much of the arts-based work is woven into some of the groups that I work with already. So for instance, um, so I work with a network of 11 different 
um, Asian American Pacific Islander social justice organization. So one of them is called Lavender Phoenix, and it's supporting queer and trans folks. And I, I was lucky enough, they invited me to participate in this whole learning um, for uh, multiple weeks, and it was so deep and so profound. And um, and I was the oldest one there, you know, like, so they're all young folks, like in their 20s. I mean, the oldest one was probably like 30s, mid 30s. Um, but the way that everything was led, I mean, it was started with radical welcoming, you know, and I thought, oh, this is like Christopher Edmonds work, right, that he's doing at Lincoln Center. And but they don't they didn't necessarily know of you know Chris's work, right? But they were doing radical welcoming. And then and then there was a whole story share and there was role play. And I said, oh wow, they're doing, you know, Marshall Gantz, the story of we, right? So they're utilizing um, oh, and then there was a whole power structure Zoom thing about how you take over a board meeting. And I thought, oh my gosh, they're using Boal technique. So <laughs> I'm thinking of it from like a theater arts base, but they're utilizing the same techniques that we use in arts, but utilizing it in social justice framework, which I thought, oh, that is great. I kind of love that combination of power. They're not naming it those things that from arts education background, we might like put, like I just said, you know, put that the pedagogical stamps on it, right? But they're doing it and it's making a difference. And so for me, that's also like, I have to break down the barriers that I have around traditional arts education and what that means and what those names are and just look at the basic. It goes back to the most basic thing. It's about the story. It's about real you know, us telling our individual stories and highlighting them, gathering the collective energy and coming up with that vision for what you want to see and then making that happen. And we do the same thing in the arts that happens in social justice land. Can you just describe what um, radical welcoming is? So radical welcoming, um, Christopher Edmund did the whole thing last year with Lincoln Center on this, but it is this whole idea that you want to make sure that everybody feels absolutely included and that they belong to a bigger group and that they are, um, they are brought in with their full authentic self to contribute to a greater whole. Do you have a, like an example of what that looks like or one, maybe one strategy? Oh my gosh, there's so many different strategies. I think, um, well, a really basic one is before you start anything, you just do a check-in with each other, like you and I did. Before we got on the interview, we just said, how are you doing? What's going on with you? Um, that we're taking care of each other, that we're paying attention to each other, that we're looking at each other, that it's especially from the kind of in Zoom land, right, when we can be really distant from one another, what are the ways that we can make sure that we're listening and paying attention to each other? Got it. Okay. Okay, great. So I, I, you know, sometimes I don't always have the theory and then the understanding. So I love when I can learn something and or realize, oh, I do, I do know what that is. I just don't have that, again, that terminology um, or that I'm not associating it with somebody specific. Where did you grow up? I have told this story a ton of times, actually. Um, I grew up in a really white area in Northern California called Marin. Um, it's a really richy, rich area, and there were no other people of color except the people that worked with my dad. He was a professor of theology and would always have graduate students from all over the world. 
And um, I was very much not a part of this rich white community. And, you know, kids would come up and touch my hair all the time and say that I, you know, ooh, you like a doll. Uh, and they'd always ask me if I was related to Bruce Lee. So, because my last name is Lee. And I was really shy as a kid. I was the, like, when these people would come up and ask me these questions, I would just be mortified that they were, you know, looking at me. I just wanted to melt into the background. My mom would get me these baby dolls. And they were at that time, they only had white baby dolls with blonde hair. And I, every time she handed me one, I would take a Sharpie and color its hair black and color the eyes black. <laughs> and then she stopped buying me those because clearly they didn't work for me. Um, and then when I was in, when I was nine years old, uh, I was in an alternative kind of hippie class. And this guy comes running into the classroom and he had around his shoulders a car fender. And he runs into the classroom and he yells at my teacher, Connie, Connie, why did you do this? And throws the fender down on the ground, which makes this like reverberating metal sound on this classroom floor. And then he runs out. And we were shocked. All the students were quiet and scared and didn't know what to do. And then the teacher said, okay, I want you to write in your journals about what just happened. So we take out our journals and we write. And then she says, okay, class, I want to introduce you to David. And she brings the guy back in and said, um, he, his background is in theater. And he's going to lead you through a session about um, how to feel and how to play different characters. And so that for me, as an incredibly shy kid at nine years old, I was going, what? <laughs> you can be different people. You could put on different parts. Um, and that was it for me as a kid. I started doing theater, started playing different roles. And then, you know, years, then a few years later from playing everything from Monkey King to Joan of Arc, uh, when people would say, oh, are you related to Bruce Lee? I'd say, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> I'm not, but I would just say that. Um, I love that guerrilla theater was what got you into doing theater. <laughs> Absolutely. And that stuff works. I'm a sucker for that, even today. A car fender. You, honestly, seriously, the dude was her boyfriend. This was, you know, a million years ago. I'm sure they never talked about it. But today you think about that, like teaching artists that I work with or that you work with, you would never have a teaching artist walk in with a fender around their neck and throw it on the ground. You traumatize kids. Yeah, actually, it's reminding me of we had we had one time we did have um, a production that we did in classrooms and it was a one person show and they were like lost in space or something like that. And they were they like showed up through a door an imaginary door, but really the door to the classroom. <laughs> um, and then we're basically like, can you help me? Can you help me get home? And so when we were trying to figure out how do we do this in a time where, you know, active shooters, like you can't just be some random stranger walking into a, a what? So we, what, we had to create a whole construct where we were in the midst of a workshop with our teaching artists and our staff and we're having this classroom and then that happens. And obviously there was a lot of planning with the teacher. So then we knew that when the kids were all, of course, shocked because this guy, I mean, he didn't have a car fender, <laughs> but he had some, some sort of costume, but 
uh, he can't, he comes in and just like shocks and stops everything. And everybody's like, what? But then we all sort of peel away and start to sit down and relax. And so once the kids knew, they like knew, okay, something's going on here and the adults are not afraid. We can sort of like enjoy this, but we, ha- we had to work really intentionally to figure out how to, how to handle that sort of all those pieces and make sure that kids felt safe. But I just still love that story, Miko. I love it. I mean, I didn't even think about the the shooter aspect of it. Well, when we grew up, like that just doesn't, that wasn't even a thought. You it know. wasn't a thought. And they, the other classrooms had to have heard that fender hit the ground. It was so yeah. loud. So, wow. I just, yes. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so where did you, did you study theater in, in um, upper, like a higher education or? I studied, uh, yeah, I went to San Francisco State. I double majored in theater and women's studies. Mm. So I did actually study theater. And where and was like acting the thing or did you expand your scope? Acting was primarily the thing, but then, uh, you know, you know, who can just do one thing, right? <laughs> I, I, I always taught, I always taught theater along the way, but then I got into choreography and directing and writing and kind of did all the things. I had my own theater company that was doing Asian fusion work. And then I was doing work that, um, that actually still, I resonates with me today even where I created projects where I was working with young folks that were in the tenderloin in San Francisco that were gang affiliated kids and doing um, theater slash video work with them and then taking that work to young men that were incarcerated in the youth authority which in California that's our kids prison which is actually they're getting rid of now but I would take that work back and forth and we'd do a dialogue with kids in the tenderloin and then kids in the California youth authority. So, um, yeah, I thought actually in the last few years, I worked on a project with the Hewlett Foundation, looking at equity, uh, equity, the lack of arts education for, um, for folks that are incarcerated or systems involved. And so that work that I did so much of really has come back. I've been thinking about it a lot these days. Well, I was just, I was feeling like this like bookend sort of moment, like civic engagement has always been, has been very yeah for sure I mean for sure I was raised in a household where we would make protest posters we talk about politics and in fact my dad was a minister uh a professor minister and what he was he marched in Selma he marched at he was at the I have a dream speech you know he was um both my parents were activists and so I was raised in an ethos of activism um and kind of the combination of that theater and activism has been something that I've worked with throughout my whole career. But, uh, and actually the organization I work for now um, is the parent organization of my organization my dad was on the board of for 20 years. So I do feel like there's this like coming coming home vibe. And, and are your parents still with us? They are not. Neither one of them are still with us. So I, it's more carrying on the in you know my ancestors legacy yeah I'm sure they're very proud of you um so I uh I feel like I I uh I understand theater and you've done a lot of different um uh uh roles you've had a lot of different roles within the theater world acting directing choreography 
um, theater management. <laughs> um, I'm curious right now, how do you identify as an artist? You know, I would have, I think now, I always see my soul as a theater artist, but the practicality of what I actually do daily is a visual artist. Mm. I actually, during the pandemic, I started doing these embroidered portraits of my ancestors on see-through silk. And they actually got accepted into this gallery last year, which I was shocked by. And so I had three of my works as part of this gallery and they were the first works that sold. And I was like, what? And so that has been such a really interesting journey for me. I really seriously just did it because uh, it was a pandemic invention as something, honestly, I swear to God, because I was on so many Zoom meetings. And if I was not presenting, actively presenting or coordinating, I had to be doing something to listen. As we talked about earlier, I'm a kinesthetic learner, so I have to be doing something. So I was doing these embroidered silks. And now I have, I mean, they're actually all around me in my house right now. I probably have 30 of them. Um, and then my daughter is a filmmaker and she just got funding to do this film on Chinese American history, which um, I'm fifth generation Chinese American and she's sixth. Um, and so she's actually doing this piece on our Chinese American railroad history and is using some of my work as transitions in between the different sections of the film. So how I identify now is strangely enough as a visual artist i just enjoy when i have guests who can just understand how to tell a story one you can tell a story and so i was following like i could visualize it i could even see your daughter like doing me not stop but like i, I like figuring out how, how the fabric needed to look on <laughs> like i could see that all the way down to that kind of detail but that might be because that's how i that's how i learn is i need to see things um so i just make a mind movie um uh so you've got such a rich, like, oh, there's so many places we could go, Miko. I'm curious about, let's talk a little bit. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, your experience. Um, when, when you, you said that you started with teaching RS Guild, you can tell me what you feel comfortable with. Okay. <laughs> Cause I'm going to ask some pointed questions. Um, so you, you, you've been there from the beginning um, and then you were at one point the ED and you're still on the national board in this moment of transition. It's been a, like two or three years and there's, it sounds like big, big hopes and ideas um, in the works for the future of um, serving the field. And um, so I'm curious about a few things. One, why, why did you get involved in the first place? Two, why did you stay involved why are you continuing to stay involved I'll, I'll start with those two um oh okay my answer to both is the same why did I get involved originally and why do I stay because I deeply believe that teaching artists are the change makers to the world that we want to see and I feel like teaching artists have not been recognized in the field as such an important power that they are, or that we are. <laughs> um, and I've worked on multiple sides of that coin. I've always been a teaching artist since I, pretty much since I very first started, 
but then I've run arts organizations. So I've understood how complicated, like pay, like how, how do you actually make budget when you're trying to pay teaching artists an equitable living wage, but still the staff at your organization are not making anywhere near what the teaching artists are. How do you create community with the teaching artists when, as we were talking about earlier, when they're coming from not just different places and different arts disciplines and different mindsets, you know, how do you pull all those things to together to create a collective community? So I stay because I still feel like the creative inspiration and imagination of teaching artists is what's going to help us get out of the mess of a world that we're living in right now. Which is back to your earlier thing. I think I appreciate what when I was hired, that's kind of what my, you know, now boss was saying. It's like, we need a different way of thinking. I mean, the system has been, we've all been living in this system that the last three years have shown us is broken, like ridiculously broken. Some of us have been benefiting from it, um, myself included. I have a house to live in. I have food. I have clothes. I'm privileged in this world. Um, but it is not the right system for us to live in that helps everybody. So I do believe that teaching artists can help be the change-making factor to reimagine the world as we want it to be. I completely agree. Um, I am. You say things in a way that like are so lovely and so inspiring, but then it's like it's something that you just said about how the teaching artists get paid more than the staff in your company. Well, that that's optics. That's not truth, right? Because it's what, what, what? Can you speak more to that? Okay, you're right. Okay, okay. Thank you so much for calling that out. I, okay, so let me just say, in my tag time, <laughs> in, when I was working as one of the co-EDs, I was speaking all over the country mm -hmm. and to different places around pay equity for teaching artists. And that was like the number one thing that came up from arts organization leaders. And um, I said, I totally understand that because I run arts organizations. And what you're asking is my follow-up, which, which is so excellent. Thank you for prodding that, which is that if you break down the benefits that staff members get and the fact that they're paid year round for the work that they're doing and get vacation and get all those other perks that they get as a staff member, it is not equitable to a living wage for a teaching artist. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the things that we were really fighting for is to be able to provide um, teaching artists with the ability to get a living wage. And that's why there's that um, wage calculator that's on the TAG website to be able to enable folks to be able to pay appropriately. Beautiful. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, I'll just make a point here that uh, it has been said by several directors or VPs of finance, like, oh, do you know that the teaching artist payroll is larger than the, the the payroll in your in your department? It's like, yeah, but do you understand that that payroll is dispersed amongst fifty people? A, B, they don't work year round. They don't have benefits. They don't have you know X, Y, and Z. So it's like you're looking at the bottom line. You're looking at a number. That number tells a much more complex and nuanced story. So don't 
fucking tell me that with the why is it this way? I'm going to tell you and I'm going to be right and you're not going to back. I'm not going to change that. In fact, I'm going to continue to work so that we can increase that number because we're still underpaying them. And in fact, teaching artists, that's the work. That's the work. And frankly, that's what we're driving on. That's like that work is why we have funding. <laughs> like that's how literally like 90% of what we're fundraising for is, is for the work that these people do and how you talk, how we talk about it and how beautiful it is, is because of those humans. So last year at this time, um, myself and Jennifer Ridgway collaborated in creating this letter to yes. our organizations, mm-hmm. which was this breakup letter. And that was actually, that's kind of where it started. It started during the pandemic where certain, oh, it started um, in one, you know, after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were murdered with all these folks doing performative uh, Black Lives Matter. And, or I mean, one of the most egregious ones was a theater company in Texas that said, hello, teaching artists of color, <laughs> you know, hello, teaching artists. And then in parents of color, they didn't really say that. I'm just saying the intention, mm. come to the theater. We want to take a solidarity photo. So they wanted to take a photo to put a thing out there, but they didn't want to pay those teaching artists for their time. They didn't want to uh, make any recommendations for change about how they were going to change their practices at that theater company. Um, So these performative acts were really offensive. At the same time, when the We See You was coming out of Broadway and theater folks in New York, a bunch of us, yourself, and so many other colleagues got together and said, we should do something on behalf of teaching artists. So that's, it ended up winnowing down to being this breakup letter that Jennifer Ridgway and I started and then shared with, and and this list, a checklist that came after the breakup letter that said, okay, what can you do to repair this relationship between your arts organization and teaching artists? And we got tons of people's feedback and those actually came out of listening tours that we did in multiple states with teaching artists. Um, But a big thing was just taking teaching artists for granted, Uh, the pay, is a huge way in our capitalistic society that is showcased of the lack of respect for teaching artists. So many components. That's a huge way you are correct. Um, and, and <clears throat> you know about, because you all pr- pr- uh, presented it, right? Or Precious was a keynote speaker at the conference, our shared, ver- uh, what was it called? Our shared future. Our shared future. Yeah. Um, and so like how, uh, sorry, when was teaching our skills? When did it start? I'm just going to try and mark time for a second. The whole organization, the whole organization. It's gotta be like 20 years. No more, maybe like 25 years. I could look it up later. Okay. So, okay. So let's say t- two All decades, right. long time. That's great. Um, so from, from that beginning, to you know now uh you're working in um more on the civic engagement social justice side of uh, uh, of the world and you're bringing your creativity and all your um theater-based knowledge into into that work and you're on the national advisory board so i'm trying to figure out like where are the threads where are you seeing the connections actually between your work at teaching our guild and for um, continuing advo- advocacy for teaching artists 
as humans and uh, in all senses of the word uh, and the work that you're embarking on with your current role? So I've always believed that arts is the main tool for social justice. So I was talking about my dad earlier and he believed that he could do that through religion uh, because he was following Reverend Alan Payton and South Africa and he and Dr. King, he thought that religion was the tool for social justice. I feel like arts is, creativity, imagination is. Um, so for me, they interlap, over, overlap, intersect, weave together constantly. Um, whether that's, I'm working with a whole cohort of Asian refugees, both Bhutanese and Vietnamese, that are doing deep healing work and ancestral healing work with an artist that's all around how do we um, honor our ancestors and create uh, visions for what we want to see when we have been cut off, literally cut off from our lands. How do we reimagine and recenter ourselves in a new land that doesn't even belong to us? And they're doing it in solidarity with indigenous folks and with African-American folks um, to look at how they can grow their sort of regrow their trans forcibly transplanted populations. The only way you can do that work is if you don't think in a traditional structure. I believe, I believe, or let me rephrase, the best way that you could do that work is if you can imagine differently about how you wanna carry that work out. So, it it's, goes back to that very root of teaching artists being able to think differently and enact change. I'm really digging digging on you, and I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to be I'm going to be real frank here. I'm trying to be super. Something I'm noticing about you is you are very inclusive in your language, and I sometimes want to segment, and I'm so I'm trying to mirror you a little bit, <laughs> um, and I'm not practiced at it. So, um, one, I, can we talk a little bit more about your, um, Chinese American heritage? This is a culture I, I know, I know very little about. This is a history. I, I feel like I know through specific lenses. Um, so I guess where, what I'm wondering if I'm, rem I'm reminded or I'm, re I'm remembering when you were telling a story about when you were a kid and you were quite introverted and then nine, you saw, you, you found theater and that seemed to be a, a good vehicle for you to extend past that. When I think about myself as a kid, I was similar, actually. I was um, quite quiet. I grew up in a, in a pretty affluent or it was a stratosphere, but like a pretty affluent, predominantly white neighborhood um though it was it was still you know diverse in terms of ethnicity but it, it was you know mostly white presenting and um there were you know not I, I know I don't remember anybody wanting to touch my hair as a kid but I definitely know that there were a lot of questions about my skin color and like comments and that you start to sort of internalize that shit because it's they're hearing it from their parents so that in um and so like I've done some, my own work to sort of get move past all that um, or through that. But at the same time, 
I think I was, like you said, I wanted to just be a part of the background. Like I saw, I sort of was like, I don't understand people. And I, and in order for me to understand better, I need to stop talking. Like this is not, I wasn't thinking this like very, I'm not going to talk anymore, but I think one of the things why I was so quiet was because I was trying to understand the world around me. And in order to do that, I needed to be listening and like observing and not trying to engage because I didn't understand yet exactly where I was meant to be. Um, and so that, that to me felt like a lot of my, like in school, like very specifically in school persona. And then, and then theater, theater was the thing for me that I was like, I really like this at home. And then I was getting different opportunities to do theater at school. And so then kids were seeing a different side of me, I think. Um, um, and yet I was still like, careful careful I think that that might be a better word now I I just want to preface this that like I love where I grew up I really I just had my 30th high school reunion I had a really good time it was great to see everybody everybody's very nice so this isn't like a, a judgment on on anybody I grew up with it's just more like this was my experience where it does inform who you are as an adult or who you want to be or who you how you tend to like want to move in the world I felt much more comfortable in my skin as I got older through my schooling. And I definitely made a choice to be like, I'm going to stop trying to absorb whatever like people put on me and just decide what I want to be and be it. (laughs) And that, and that has served me well, very, very well. Um, So I know that that wasn't about ethnicity, but I, I wanted to just sort of like mark for you where I felt connected to what you were telling me about being a kid. And so to me, I'm curious just from, yeah, from your own cultural experience growing up in a similar kind of, um, uh, you know, neighborhood or town, where did you feel like you could shine? Where could you feel like you were, um, you know, able to, where did you feel most proud? Where, you know, what, what was the home life like? And I think I'm still asking this through the lens of arts. So feel free to add that in. When you were telling your story, yes, I related to that so much. And it actually made me think of um, Maxine Hong Kingston, the writer of The Woman Warrior, um, Mm -hmm. who I love and was um, happy enough to be in the production of her book that was a play and toured all over. And one of the things she writes about in the beginning is she uh, used to create these pieces of art that were all black, like the whole page was black. And she was mute for a couple of years and her mom took her to doctors and they couldn't find anything physically wrong with her. And it turned out that she had drawn the most beautiful, colorful, amazing pictures underneath of all these Chinese opera images, but she didn't want anybody to see it. And when the show's over, the curtain closed. So her black was the curtain that was closed, closed over. And her being mute was she was verbally abused by her mom and she was just taking all that in and just watching and listening. And that's what her years of muteness was about. It was just like, I'm just gonna listen. Anyways, I just visually saw that whole image of the black curtain closing when you were telling your story. Um, So your question was my Chinese American identity and when I kind of came to, uh, came into that. Yeah, came into it. Cause I I definitely felt like I, 
I've so I've just talked about this in other ways, but like for me, my like coming into my black like identity uh, identity has been a a slow process, and I think partly it was because I was um you know I only had my immediate family. And they they came from different parts of the country, had different life experiences. So I, I was always trying to absorb that. So I and it was confusing. It was very confusing because it was very different than my life. Right. And then there was all this other kinds of things going on. So it was me just trying to understand the world by way of this small little town and um, and not necessarily having a lot of exposure to other people who look like me. So that's what I'm asking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I, there was a marked moment in my childhood when I was 14 and my dad had a sabbatical year as a professor every seven years and the family wanted to go to China and I didn't want to go. So it was my parents, my four siblings and my auntie were all planning this trip to China. And I didn't want to go at 14 because everybody would say, um, go back to China or what's it like in China? And I used to proudly say, I've never been there. I'm American. And I didn't, when they were all getting ready to go, I didn't want to have to say that I knew what China was. That's the kind of shame that I felt about my heritage. Um, but then as they were all packing and getting ready to go, I'm like, I don't want to be left behind. <laughs> Wait a second. And so I went thinking, okay, now, okay. Then when I, when I joined my family, we all went, we were part of, there were 14 members in this overseas Chinese tour. And my family made up over half of that group. And I remember thinking, okay, now I'm going to go to the place where I belong this is China. This is where I belong. And we got there. This was many years ago, 1979. So there was very few, you know, quote unquote, foreigners there at the time. Um, and when we went, people followed us around like we were movie stars or BTS. They were just like following us around. We would be in, we, our clothes were different. That's everybody was wearing Mao jackets and clothes still. We were in colorful, we were in like down jackets, puffy clothes and overalls, like all the seventies look. Um, and, and I realized I don't, you know, belong here. We didn't speak the language that people were looking at us funny kind. So that was an epiphany of, wow, I am not Chinese. I am not American. I'm Chinese American. And that is its own thing. Um, and then over the years, it's really been kind of a gradual learning process of being around, you know, colleagues, meeting, meeting friends, meeting new people. Um, and then for my two daughters, I intentionally wanted that whole sense of pride in their Asian heritage to be imbued in who they are. So I picked a school in Berkeley that was a bicultural school. It's not anymore, but it was at the time. Um, so that they were getting Chinese as a part of their learning. I, I put them in Chinese schools on the weekends. Uh, they were in lion dance doing performances in you know traditional Chinese lion dance every weekend. Uh, so I wanted them to have what I didn't have to have this sense of, um, pride in who they are. 
And then for me, you know, coming around now working with an all Asian American and Pacific Islander civil rights organization, it's like, woof, wow, I did not know how much I had been missing out on having so many folks that I share these progressive values with. It's not just my immediate family, which it was, but I also have both of my parents come from eight, nine, 10 kids. And so there's bigger, you know, we have a bigger community. Every gathering was at my family's house. And so I understood that in terms of culture and family and what that meant, but the kind of broader world of the whole um, Asian American Pacific Islander native Hawaiian diaspora, which is vast, that I'm learning more and more about every day. So, yeah. So as uh, as you are learning, like what's something that, uh, what's a discovery that you've made um, either either in adulthood or through this, through your civil rights organization? Intergenerational trauma is real. <laughs> I mean, uh, if you haven't seen everything, everywhere, all at once, see that movie because that is real. <laughs> um, the kind of embedded learning that we carry on through multiple generations around confidence, around um, identity, around faith and family, it's carried on for many, many generations. And it, from uh, the wide spectrum of the AAPI. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And in my direct family, I mean, I see that, I think about, you know, that our ancestors' wildest dreams, that amazing quote. Mm -hmm. I think about, you know, my grandma who was, in Madeira and making soy sauce for the whole community of San Francisco, Chinatown, and the amount of time that she had to drive in to be able to get there. And my mom growing up picking cotton in Madeira. And, you know, these, the fact that my parents um, prioritized providing arts experiences for me, given my mom grew up in a, first a laundromat and then a mom and pop grocery shop in Berkeley. And my dad, uh, my dad's family was the first family to integrate Burlingame, the city of Burlingame with their restaurant. And my dad was this high school student body president of Burlingame High, and yet he couldn't get a date to the prom. He helped build the community center, uh, raise the funds for the community center. And they had him dig the first shovel, you know how they do the first shovel. And yet immediately when the swimming pool went in they put no Chinese or dogs allowed in the pool entryway. Wow. Um, so just my parents, from just my parents' time to the fact that they loved music. They, we, I grew up with an art room. We had a room that was dedicated to arts. I, there was, my mom saved everything, as I know so many artists do now, but, you know, there was bottle caps, there was ping pong balls, there was like every, she had a, when we were moving out, there was literally, she's an amazing, amazing chef, and when we moved out of the house I grew up in after 20 years, she, there was a box, a huge box, like 
twice the size of a banker's box full of wishbones. Just wishbones that you can collect. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and you know, now my when I've told that story to other visual artist friends that I they said uh, I was saying I don't why did my mom save those for so many years because she wanted to make art with them and now my artist friends say that was art that many wishbones that whole box was art <laughs> but my point is I was raised in this household where arts was treasured that you you know you would take time you'd we would write in journals we would make things all the time um it was Halloween was a huge adventure because it was always about coming up with the inventive costume that I would sew with my mom and then I still did that with my daughters too so and and my there we lived nearby to a theater that had all these musicals and my parents would take me to see every single one so I there was always this idea and I think I I think what is added to that is I was raised in this um, global mentality because my dad always had graduate students from around the world and every month he would host a multiple course Chinese uh, banquet, which my mom had to cook and I always had to do the dishes and serve. But so we always had people from all around the world that were in the house that we could talk to and share experiences with. And many times when they were sharing their experiences, it was a story or a song or a poem. Um, and so the the way they walked in the world was really, now I see that as it was through the arts. That's how they communicated. So to me, that still is the underlying thing of all, uh, actually the underlying answer to all those questions you've been asking about, how do those things intersect or why do I still work with TAG? Because I think that arts, any kind of art form is at the essence of who we are as people. And that's how we communicate and grow together. Thank you for listening to episode 57, act one of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Miko Lee, Arts, Essence, Us. Join us next time for act two. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at teaching artistry with CJB and now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Colton J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Ooh.